Episode 8, The Persian Wars. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and try to see how those events shaped our modern world. Welcome to Episode 8, The Persian Wars. We're talking today about the ancient wars between Greece and Persia. I've mentioned that Greece has had an important impact on the Western world, but did you know that ancient Greece was almost wiped out completely a couple of times? Greece was a smallish country, but they tangled with the biggest empire of their time, the Persians. The battles between these two countries will become legendary and will give us a couple of the best battle quotes of all time. Also, Pheidippides and his famous last words. Lots of good quotes in this episode. We've mentioned the days of the Mycenaeans and the Greek Dark Ages and how the beginning of the end of the Greek Dark Ages was about when Homer wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, which was sometime around 800 BC. Now, we're getting past that. We're getting to the real beginning of recorded history. And from this point on, we can almost always date what one culture says is going on against the other records of other cultures. In other words, we're finally at the point where we're going to have a unified timeline and we can fit events to very specific dates on the timeline. Before this, we always had to say something like, sometime around 800 BC. But after this, we're getting to the point where we can say, on September 27th, 480 BC, this happened. That's the date, by the way, of the Battle of Salamis, which was the ancient Greek version of the Battle of Midway. Well, with less dive bombers. Okay, so around 550 BC, yes, I'm still using around in a few places. Around 550 BC, the Persians, who were a tribe from what is now Iran, began to expand. They conquered the Medes, who had been the biggest kingdom in the region, and then they continued to expand. The king of the Persians was Darius, and he built up the largest empire the world had seen to that point. It was the biggest one, right? He built the largest empire. The Persian empire stretched from the Persian Gulf in the south to what is now Kazakhstan in the east, up to the middle of the Black Sea in the north, and in the west, they began to expand into the Greek-held lands in what is now Turkey. This area of Turkey at the time was called Ionia. And at first, the Ionian Greek cities did not resist the Persians. Well, they didn't really have the strength to do so. But in 499 BC, the Ionians tried to rebel. They were supported by two cities from mainland Greece, Eritrea and Athens. Together, they all destroyed a Persian city called Sardis. And then the Eritreans and the Athenians went back home to mainland Greece. Well, of course, the Persians quickly came back and reconquered Ionia. And the Persians did not forget that the Athenians and Eritreans had helped in the revolt. So the Persians are thinking about the Greek cities of Eritrea and Athens, and they weren't happy about them. This ends up setting up 50 years of fighting, known to the Greeks as the Persian Wars. Okay, now we're getting to one of the most famous battles 
of all time, the Battle of Marathon. This battle is carefully recorded by the Greek historian Herodotus, who wrote about it only 50 years after it happened. So we know it's relatively accurate. In 490 BC, Darius came back to Greece with a massive army and a massive navy. He landed first at Eritrea and destroyed the city. Darius and the army then got back in their boats and they sailed to Marathon, which is a small town on the coast just northeast of Athens. The Athenians sent their best messenger, a runner, a guy named Pheidippides, to run to Sparta and ask for help. Now, it's about 150 miles from Athens to Sparta, lots of hills. Herodotus mentions our friend Pheidippides, and supposedly Pheidippides ran that 150 miles in just two days. Now for scale, just for those of you who live in Texas, that's about the distance from Houston to Austin. The annual MS-150 is a bicycle race from Houston to Austin, and that takes two days. Supposedly, Pheidippides ran the whole thing, and then he gets there and he asks the Spartans for help. Normally, the Spartans would have been all over this request since they were maybe the most war-loving city in all of history. But they were in the middle of an important city festival, and the elders said they can't come fight until the festival was over. No, no, we can't defend Greece right now. We have this party. See? It's kind of a big deal. We'll come when the party's over, okay? So they send Pheidippides back to Athens with the bad news. And then the Athenians send him on to the front lines with the army at Marathon. The Greek army had about 10,000 soldiers. King Darius and the Persians had at least 30,000. Some estimates are even higher. When they began the battle, the Greeks intentionally let the center of their line collapse, and then the phalanxes on either Greek wing, the left and the right, turned in, and they crushed the Persians. We'll talk a little bit more about phalanxes and what they are in a separate episode, but the Persians, sensing that they were being beaten, they fell apart and they ran, and the Greeks chased them and cut them down, chasing them all the way back to their ships. The Persians lost as many as half of their men, which was a stunning defeat, stunning to King Darius and stunning to the whole world that this small army of Greeks had defeated the mighty Persians. The ones who survived, the Persians who survived, sailed back across the Aegean Sea to regroup. Back on the field at Marathon, the Greeks send our running friend Pheidippides to run back to Athens and tell them what happened. The distance from Marathon to Athens is just about 25 miles which is where we get the distance for our modern marathons. Pheidippides runs up to Athens and he says to the elders, Nicomen, which means we won. And then he died right there in front of the elders. His last words go, though, those are pretty good, right? So we have a historic victory for the Greeks, a heroic effort, effort from Pheidippides and the Persians retre retreating across the Aegean Sea to Ionia and points farther east. Not long after that, King Darius of Persia dies, but the memory of what happened in Greece does not die. Darius' son, Xerxes, which, by the way, I think is one of the cooler names in all of history, Xerxes. Xerxes succeeds Darius, and Xerxes wants to outdo his father and wants to expand the Persian Empire even farther. So he decides he's going to build uh, build and bring an even bigger army to Greece and show them 
what's what. So in 480 BC, 10 years after Marathon, he sets out with an army of between 150,000 and a million men. Accounts vary on the size of this army, but Herodotus, who's pretty reliable, says a million. And it's probable, most likely anyway, this is the biggest army ever assembled up to this point in history. Right? Xerxes also has a huge navy to try to fight the Greek navy and to keep them from sailing up the coast and flanking around his army and stuff like that. But instead of sailing his army to Greece, he marches them. It's a long march and a huge army, so it takes a while. There's a stretch of water that they have to cross, however, that's in what is now Istanbul. It's called the Hellespont. Xerxes has his engineers build a bridge there, and they use 600 ships. That's an enormous number of ships, by the way. And they use planks, and they even put dirt across the planks, so the army's marching across sort of on a road of floating ships across this stretch of, it's kind of a stretch of the Black Sea. It's a uh, inlet between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. It apparently took the army seven days to cross this bridge because the army was so large. Once they were across, they had to march over to the main part of the Greek peninsula. And they had to march through some mountains to get to the main cities of Greece. But there, waiting for them in the mountain pass near the town of Thermopylae, was a group of about 7,000 Greeks, including 300 Spartans led by their king, Leonidas. You know where this is going, don't you, right? The Battle of Thermopylae is one of the most famous battles in all of history, maybe even more famous than Marathon. Leonidas and the Greeks had the advantage of good position, but Xerxes had almost unlimited men. So sometime in late July or early August of 480 BC, See, we're getting more specific. I told you we would, right? Late July, early August of 480 BC, Xerxes begins to attack the Greeks. The Greeks are locked up in a narrow pass in the mountains, and they're defending their ground in this narrow pass in the mountains. So the Leonidas and the Greeks hold the pass for seven days, including three full days of fighting, not yielding an inch to the Persian army. This is an amazing feat of holding their ground against this much, much larger army. Uh, but it's partly because of, of the ground they held and just because of the amazing discipline of the Greek soldiers. So they fight and they hold off the Persians for, for three days. Now we're getting to the point where we, we hear some of these great quotes from the battle. The Persians at one point sent an envoy to the Greeks to tell them they needed to surrender and the Greeks refused. The envoy said to them, We will darken the sky with our arrows, which they easily could considering that many men. We'll darken the sky with our arrows. But a Greek soldier named Dionikes reportedly said, Good, then we will fight in the shade. This is one of the best battle quotes of all time. But the best is yet to come. The Persian envoy gets more and more agitated and rather forcefully tells King Leonidas to surrender all of his weapons. And Leonidas said, come and get them. In all the history of battle quotes, that is the best battle quote of all time. Come and get them. So the Persians eventually attacked and the Greeks held them off for three days until a local resident told Xerxes about a small mountain pass off to the side, and he led some of the Persians back behind the Greek lines to attack them from the rear. 
Leonidas, realizing what was happening, let most of the Greek soldiers go to head back to Athens. So the 300 Spartans and maybe 700 other Greeks stayed to hold the pass. Almost all of the Greeks who stayed to hold off the main Persian army ended up fighting to the death. So the Battle of Thermopylae was technically a Greek defeat, but it wasn't really a Persian victory. The Greek and Spartan warriors had bought the rest of Greece more than a week to prepare and to get ready to defend themselves, and they had badly dented the morale of the Persians. The Persians did eventually break through the mountain pass at Thermopylae, and they marched on to Athens. But when they got there, they found the city completely deserted. Now we get to the real victory. And the battle that doesn't get as much attention as Marathon or Thermopylae, even though it's the one that really matters, Salamis. Salamis is an island off the coast of Greece, and it was the site of one of the largest naval battles in all of history, probably the largest up to that point. There's only a few since then that have been larger. Again, the Greeks were outnumbered, but again, the Greeks were better sailors than the Persians, and they had the advantage of location, just like they did at Thermopylae. According to Herodotus, again, there were about 370 Greek ships against about 1,200 Persian ships. It's a lot of ships. That's more than three to one advantage for the Persians, though. But the Greeks lured the Persians into a narrow strait in the water between two islands where the huge number of Persian ships actually worked against them because they were too crowded and they couldn't maneuver. The Greeks thoroughly routed the Persian navy, destroying most of their ships, killing many of their sailors. And they captured and killed the admiral of the Persian navy, who was one of Xerxes' brothers. Xerxes himself supposedly watched the battle from a mountainside near the shore, and he realized that the Persian fleet had been destroyed. Xerxes took most of his army, and he marched back to Asia. He left beside behind a sizable force, maybe 300,000 men still, under one of his generals, Mardonius. But eventually, in 479 BC, the Greeks defeated Mardonius and the Persians at the Battle of Plataea, ending the war between the Greeks and the Persians. The, the Persians never came back after that and attacked the Greeks again. Eventually, though, the Greeks will go strong enough to go attack the Persians, but that won't happen until Alexander the Great comes on the scene. Alexander the Great was still a bit bitter about these attacks, and he wanted a bit of revenge. But the defeat of the Persians in 479 BC begins what is known as the Golden Age of Greece, which is one of the most intellectually productive times in Western history. We'll look at this time in more detail in upcoming episodes. So how do these battles between the Greeks and and the Persians influence our Western world, our modern worldview? Well, as I've said, Greece is one of the most influential cultures in the history of the world, and, and it wouldn't have been that if it had been defeated by the Persians. Maybe we would be talking about how influential Persia was on Western history, but hey, Thermopylae, Salamis, Greece won. The most influential thinkers in Greece show up soon after these battles. Because the Greeks had bought themselves some time and some peace and some breathing room, they had a time of prosperity where they were not spending their time fighting external enemies. And in that time, they developed some of the greatest thinkers the world has ever seen. We'll look at these guys soon, too.
Another way these battles influence the modern world is that the Western world, and especially Western military units, have essentially inherited some of the values of the ancient Greeks who strove to defend their homelands. Values such as courage in the face of overwhelming odds, doing your duty no matter the cost, self-sacrifice, teamwork, leaders who are part of the battle, the importance of choosing your battleground, and the right to defend yourself against tyrants. All of these are important values in the Western world. In the end, this is what the Greek defense against Persia was all about. The Greeks were defending their right to rule themselves rather than be ruled by Persia. And they were willing to take up arms and fight to the death rather than let someone else rule them against their will. There are echoes of this spirit all throughout Western history, in the American Revolution, in the American Civil War, in the Reformation, in the English Civil War, in the Scots fighting against the invading British, in the Zulus fighting against the invading British, okay, anyone fighting against the invading British, and in many of the great battles of, of Western history, including World War I and World War II, the idea that some foreign power can come in and take over your land and then tell you you're their subject and you have to pay tribute to them, that is tyranny. And though some people throughout history have said, okay, okay, we'll submit, we'll submit, that's better than fighting, don't hurt us. Other people have said, no, I'm not going to lie down and I'm not going to let that happen. I'm going to take up arms and fight back. That's the spirit of Patrick Henry's famous quote, give me liberty or give me death. One last thought on how that matters in our modern world. It might just be that our current world today is moving in the direction of tyranny again. The history of the world is an ongoing struggle between tyrants who want to control everything and people defending their own rights to self-determination and liberty. When a government begins to curtail the rights of its people to determine their own destiny, whether it's your own government or the government of a country that wants to take yours over, the time comes when people must choose to either submit or to fight back. History does not remember those who submitted History remembers those who have said, come and take them. My friend John listened to a draft of this episode, and he said, this would be a really good place to talk about the Second Amendment. And I said to myself, oh my gosh, how did I forget that? He's exactly right. The Spartans were a city where every citizen was a soldier so that no one could come and become a tyrant over them. In order to do that, to protect that right, they all armed themselves, all the citizens. There were plenty of cities that the Persians just simply took over because they weren't able to defend themselves. But the Spartans prevented that because they were well armed. Part of what happened in the American Revolution, and which led to the Second Amendment in the Bill of Rights, is that the British passed laws that colonists had to turn in their rifles. The colonists could see that this was a step towards tyranny, towards them not being able to defend themselves. The first actual battles of the American Revolution, Lexington and Concord, happened because the British were trying to capture a couple of colonist armories and take the weapons by force. Part of a long series of abuses, as the colonists saw it, and the colonists felt it was worth risking their lives, as the Greeks did, against a much superior military force in order to protect their rights, their liberty, and their own weapons. They resisted the slide toward tyranny that they were seeing. 
Both the Greeks and the American colonists were only able to do this because they had their own weapons. After their experience with their own government, at the time, it was the British government that was their own government. Remember, they all saw themselves as British citizens until July of 1776. After their experience with their own government was that the government was trying to disarm them and that their government was trying to force them to submit, right? After that, they started to resist. And so starting with Lexington and Concord, they said, no, we'll fight instead to keep our right to self-determination and to keep our own guns to safeguard that right. So later, when they created a Bill of Rights to limit the power of the central government, they added the Second Amendment to protect them from future tyranny. That tyranny might very well be our own government. That's what they were protecting us from. That's who the founding fathers were trying to restrict, our own government with the Bill of Rights. It's not there to protect you from foreign powers and the abuse of foreign powers. The Bill of Rights is there to protect American citizens from the American government. Part of the defense of personal liberty is the idea of personal responsibility. The idea that I am responsible for defending my liberties, not the government. And the only way to ensure that personal responsibility and the ability to defend that, the only way to ensure that is to be able to defend yourself and not entrust that entirely to the federal government. Right? That's the idea of the Constitution. Because as we've seen in this podcast, governments have historically trended towards tyranny with only brief moments in history where people have banded together and created governmental forms that are limited, that have checks and balances built into their structure to at least somewhat slow the slide towards tyranny. Government and those in power behind the government, that is the rich, if they are unchecked, they will move towards tyranny at the expense of individual liberty. Until the people stand up, like the Greeks did, like the Founding Fathers did, and as some others have done throughout history, and say, no, you can't take our right to defend ourselves. You can't take our right to self-determination. That's the core idea behind the Declaration of Independence. History does not remember those who submitted. History remembers those who have said, but when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism. It is their right, it is their duty to throw off such a government and to provide new guards for their future security. We'll look more closely at that episode in a much later episode, if we get there before this cycle erupts again. In our next episode, we'll look at the development of Athenian democracy, something that clearly had a big effect on the Western world. But before that episode, we're going to take another quick side episode to look at something I find fascinating, Greek military and naval advancements, and how it was that they won these amazing battles against much larger forces. Mm -hmm.